Michael Leary, Timothy Stafford, and a special guest coming from a germ-infested, um, congestion-filled, mucus-producing face. Ladies and gentlemen, Seth, Thomas, Charles, Bob, Erie. Hey, yo. How you doing, buddy? Good. Good. We've been home all week together. Yep. We don't have COVID, which is great. Nope. nope. So, we're, but we've got some sort of sickness. Then yes. you've been more sickness, sick than you have in yeah. a while. I know. What have you been doing when you when you're sick? What do you do? Uh, do you do you play a lot, or do you kind of just sit and and play floppy? You play the play with the floppy. Yes. Eraser. Yep. And we love the magic eraser. The magic eraser. Right. Which, by the way, is. Uh, so a floppy if, for those of you that don't know a floppy is a way that seth manages sensory input and it usually involves some sort of rope or string or belt or something and then two solid yet flexible end pieces that he uses then to flop the rope or the string kind of between them and lately his end pieces of choice have been magic erasers that we cut in half and um they dive and and they die dive and oh yeah we use we use a knife to cut them in half absolutely we don't use a knife for a floppy do we no no that would be dumb. that would be very bad very dumb. <laughs> yeah that would be very dumb yes yes well said son so we do a lot of floppy right yeah. we, we snuggle with mom and dad on the couch fall asleep yeah right we take naps sometimes watch EV. yeah we watch afv which uh, I didn't even know was still on, but Seth Thomas oh, yeah. loves it. So we usually fall asleep either. to that, huh? Yeah. Has that been running this whole time? Yeah, it's like it's almost 40 seasons, I guess. Wow. Rest in peace. I know. Bob Carlton, Saget. Carlton's who the guy who's hosting it these days. Um, Alfonso, what's his name? Rosario. Roberto or something. Anyway, that's what's <laughs> happening in the Erie House. Timothy, how are you? I'm great. Okay, no one believes that based on uh, previous historical I'm reference. Great. Okay, well, we'll explore that in a second. But, I'm great. but Seth, yeah. what do you have to say to everybody? Yes. Are you ready? Okay. Hey, Tim. Yeah. Kiss on. Hey, Dizzy. Hey, Seth, please. And Seth, Seth, Seth. Seth, please. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what's happening in the Erie House. Some sort of uh, uh, plague has uh, run amok in the, the family. Plague on both your now, houses. Now, why, Timothy? Are you great? I, I have to admit, I'm skeptical. What? Yep. Taciturn no, and great uh, don't normally go together. Sure, they do. Mm. I uh, we're going to a concert tonight. Okay. Excited about that. Go see some live music. Who's the concert? A band called The War on Drugs. <laughs> they're good that's funny awesome <laughs> i love that i just and saw a meme the other day that said um gosh it was about something in the news with drugs and it said well it looks like drugs won the war on drugs perfect yeah. just say no be better if I remember what it was just say no just say hey oh okay so so that'll be fun yeah. you're driving to san francisco for that we are yes nice um Hey, that's fantastic, my friend. Yeah. We, um, 
I have some Michael's melancholy musings. Oh no! For us today, um, we're recording we need this a song for that. <laughs> yes, we have a. Um, we're recording this on a Friday, and it's uh, Friday, February twenty fifth. And as of this recording, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. And fighting is ongoing, and it, it seems like the latest seems to be that, that Russia is attempting to decapitate uh, Ukrainian leadership and the capital, and then negotiate for peace and kind of split up the Ukraine the way Germany was split up after uh, World War II. Um, and it, it, once, you know, this sort of, I mean, it, it, it's been since World War II that, that there has been some sort of large-scale aggression on the European continent. And so people are very rightly worried about all of this. Um, and so I just wanted to reflect a little bit on it. I remember it's it's weird, Tim, watching it through Nate's eyes. So Nate is 18. Oh, interesting, yeah. And he keeps texting me like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Now, I, I grew up in the golden 80s. We had the Cold War. We... We watched like the day, what was it, the day after or something, a nuclear bomb. And so we, we did nuclear bomb drills. Oh, right, yeah. Um, so we, we grew up in that. But in 89, the end of the Cold War happened and the wall was torn down, separating East and West Germany. And so um, I, I, it wasn't super real, you know, growing up. But then right. the first Gulf War happened in the early 90s. And that was where I was in college. And I remember I was Nate's age. I was in college watching television um, with the shock and awe campaign uh, that, you know, we waged war against Iraq and uh, on to liberate Kuwait. And I just remember, um, I remember some of the thoughts and feelings of seeing this and realizing they're real people that are being killed. But, you know, America was... You know we're undefeated baby and so we were just kind of rolling through and i don't know it was just it was just weird to process for nate to see him kind of go back in to where i was and process it from a completely different kind of cultural standpoint a much more globally interconnected um network for him it's it's a far different it's much more anxiety producing it's much more worrisome um and so I just I just wanted to spend Tim, if it's okay, just a couple minutes thinking about this. Yeah. Because um, obviously, then you know, nine eleven hit. We had a twenty year war in Afghanistan, and so so. But, but you know, those are all things we've been involved with and felt confident. You know, um, we could win. This is something much different, and uh, or it feels like something much different. And my views on. Um, war obviously have changed the more I've matured and matured yeah. as a Jesus follower, I matured as an adult um, in both instances. And so I, I have much less of a, you know, we really need to go after the bad guys and much more of a, oh my goodness, this is awful. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that really started to change um, after the Gulf War, when there was no, there were no weapons of mass destruction and right. that whole thing, and it was just like, really, we did all of that and killed hundreds of thousands of civilians for nothing. 
Yeah. And um, so I just want to talk. I was reminded of two passages. This is where the Bible is such a gift uh, because there, there are things that um, are said and written in there that speak words that I just don't have. Like the first chapter of Habakkuk came to mind this week like it does. <laughs> and um, it says, uh, the prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. And Habakkuk begins, or Habakkuk, depending. Um, <laughs> How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the Torah is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And I was sitting there just kind of scrolling through Twitter. This is the first sort of war we get to watch on social media. And um, except, you know, we had an Arab uprising, the Arab Spring back, you know, in 2012, I think it was. So watching that on social media was crazy. But this, you know, is something um, else, uh, again, entirely. Um, but that, that passage of why do I have to keep seeing these violent images, this injustice, these innocent people suffer? Um, and God, why don't you restrain it? You know, right. it's such a, such a profound question. And I love that the Bible asks it. God answers Habakkuk and says, wait till you see what I'm going to do. But that was in historical circumstances regarding Israel. We can't claim that, that promise, right. though it puts words very much to our lament. And um, so I don't know, I've just been sitting in that going, what, you know, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Um, such profound questions. And then the other passage was in Matthew where Jesus, he has been warning his uh, followers about his impending death, but he's also been warning Israel prophetically about the path that Israel is on in regards to Roman occupation and that they are choosing the path of violence and Jesus is warning them it will not go well if that's the path they choose. And so in um, Luke 19, it says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over the city and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when, you, uh, when your enemies will build up an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will destroy your children. They will dash you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming. And, and, and that one speaks uh, a bit to what if you would have only known what makes for peace. Um, one of the slogans I've been reading, you know, people, of course, are using the, this conflict to make political points. And so, right. you know, our former president's crowing, this wouldn't have happened on his watch. And we have a weak president now. And, you know, we, it, it, the, the, way th the way to peace is always strength through peace. You know, or it's peace through strength, excuse right. me. And I've heard that quoted a zillion times in commentary. It's peace through strength. And I, and I totally understand 
that that has been the posture of human beings towards each other since the beginning of human beings yep. right peace is achieved through strength yep. and even israel sitting and um you know inhabiting the the social location and language uh, that the messiah reveals himself among and in um they totally misunderstood what what kind of peace jesus was bringing and, and jesus was talking about and so even then um it's only a generation it's only it's only less than 40 years from when jesus says this that um jerusalem is encircled exactly the way he described it and destroyed and that the temple even today you can go look at the large rocks um you know from the that uh to the temple of that era um and so i was just i was just thinking and these are not none of these are complete full thoughts it's just the habakkuk passage resonates because i i feel powerless yes. the jesus passage resonates because in my powerlessness i go to the own the the natural place um that human beings go which is peace through strength um get them right. ukraine you know, um, uh, should should NATO be involved? Should we? And uh, and all of those are very legit questions, and maybe they're appropriate Christian postures. But the the Christian posture that I have adopted is just grief, because <laughs> yeah. we do not know as a people, as a human race, what makes for peace. Right. And I'm not getting into whether or not war is ever justified or violence. Uh, those are all really important questions. But I was just between watching it through Nate's eyes, having these passages come to mind, realizing uh, I was reading that there is a, a healthy distinction between patriotism in its best form, you know, just having affection for the place that you're born, uh, the people who raised you, um, the nation that you reside in. That's not a bad thing at all. But um, na uh, nationism what we call nationalism is the idea that somehow American lives are more important than Ukrainian lives or Russian right. lives or Iraqi lives. Right. And that was the part that was, as I grew up watching these conflicts, the Gulf Wars and then the war on terror, that was always the part that, that was just unsaid, but completely assumed right. that American lives are worth more than other lives. And um, it's interesting, Nate doesn't operate from that paradigm. He was never raised in that kind of worldview. For him, um, even the suffering among the Russian people is cause for sorrow and concern. And that's, yeah. um, so that's one way my politics or my faith has totally changed my politics, that, um, that the innocents bear the brunt of this stuff. And always. that's why, yeah, always always that's why that's why injustice has to be resisted now we don't return evil for evil um but but you know there we're talking about the realm of personal insult i don't know how that gets manufactured into state you know our nation state policy um the other thought um a couple of other just random thoughts is you know this is when as jesus people we it is um, it is most important that we practice the enemy love uh, of Jesus 
it's in these moments that it matters. It's not in the moments that are easy. It's not in the moments where the worst thing that happens to us is somebody says something mean on Facebook or Twitter or something. This is when we start getting riled up as a nation, as we start getting um, you know, very angry, fearful, defensive, militaristic, aggressive. It's here that the Jesus people have to make a very united stand for peace. And, and, and that can look a number of different ways. I'm not prescribing any particular way because that's way above my pay grade. I'm just saying um, to flood our social settings with prayer, lament, grief, hope, um, instead of vindictiveness or uh, demonizing enemies or um, uh, scoring political points against you know our political adversaries, you know there there seems to be a um, an invitation for the people of God to recognize the power and principalities that not only sit behind this, but also to recognize that um, war is a massively spiritual issue it's not just an economic issue it's not just a um a a bad human leadership issue like there's spiritual issues behind it and that i'm not saying that as some weirdo that says well if we just pray hard enough and rebuke you know rebuke the spirit of russia um then you know we'll be fine or that we can pray COVID away or something. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's an element. And that the, in situations like this, the people of God have opportunity to represent the upside down values of the kingdom. Um, I was reminded of a quote. Um, oh, and this one, I read this maybe three or four years after 9-11. And it's from a guy who's an Anabaptist. His name, his name is Will Willimon. And um, for a while, he was chaplain at um, Duke uh, Divinity School or Duke University. I don't know which. But he said something uh, reflecting on 9-11 that I thought was, uh, that that so jabbed me personally that I I was compelled to kind of look it up again this week. Um, uh, Here's what he said reflecting on 9-11. For the most powerful militarized nation in the world, to think of itself as an innocent victim is deadly. The silence of most Christians and the giddy enthusiasm of a few, as well as the ubiquity of flags and patriotic flags in allegedly evangelical churches, says to me that American Christians may look back upon our response to 9-11 as our greatest Christological defeat. It was shattering to admit that we had lost the theological means to distinguish between the United States and the kingdom of God. The criminals who perpetrated 9-11 and the flag-waving boosters of our almost exclusively martial response were of one mind, that the nonviolent way of Jesus is stupid. All of us preachers share in the shame. When our people felt very vulnerable, they reached for the flag and not the cross. 9-11 has changed me. I'm going to preach as never before about Christ crucified as the answer to the question of what's wrong with the world. I've also resolved to relentlessly reiterate from uh, the pulpit that the worst day in history was not a Tuesday in New York, but a Friday in Jerusalem, when a consortium of clergy and politicians colluded to run the world on our own terms by crucifying God's own son. The line that always gets me is we we all agreed that the nonviolent way of Jesus is stupid. Yeah. And, you know, here's the opportunity where that gets fleshed out. 
Yeah. You know? Um, and I, I don't have anything to say beyond that because I haven't thought deeply enough about if war is ever justified. Um, you know, the use of force versus the use of violence and self-defense and all those sorts of things are very, very important uh, questions. Um, but I, I kind of just sit in the tumult of all of these sort of conflicting thoughts and in yeah. um, kind of grieve, pray, and lament. And um, so anyway, any, any thoughts you want to add, subtract, multiply, or divide? <laughs> it's very messy. I was thinking about like, I was trying to think about the mystery, you know, what we talk about with curiosity and mystery and how those seem to be important inherent features of walking this road and, and trying to understand God. And it seems like if, if those are important, then they are intentional, mm-hmm. which means our, our like fervor for black and white understanding of how God is and works um, is maybe a like faulty pursuit. Yeah. Right. Because there, because of all that mystery and wonder, it's like, it's just an un, I don't know. It's an uneven road at times. And I feel like this whole world is when I try to make black and white understandings of things, Yeah, you just find that there's so much nuance that there's just a myriad of colors. It's not just black and white. Yeah. And obviously there is good and evil, but the tug of war between the two there's like there's just the people in the middle on that rope that are tugging that are that just kind of fall in the mush pot no matter what. Mm-hmm. So it's like the I've been trying to think about what does it mean to be a peacemaker mm-hmm. in a world like this because there is the extremes of martyrdom where you just die for a cause but nothing is achieved, and I don't know if that's if, you know if you're just dying for your principles. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's right or effective. I'm not saying it's not. I don't know that it is either yeah. way. I know that God seems to abhor violence. Mm-hmm. So how do we not be peacekeepers? How do we be peacemakers as not the nation's leaders? Mm-hmm. Like how do we... Right. I mean, prayer and lament. I'm so tired of lamenting. It's been a season and a half of lamenting. <laughs> yeah. Just like my lament reserves are depleted. And I, I realize how privileged that statement is. I'm, that's not lost on me, but yeah, I don't want to just, I don't want to continue to just pray. It's like with the, um, the Afghan refugees, like just because we're close to people that work with World Vision, I was able to see people mobilize quickly to help. And they yeah. couldn't solve the problem in Afghanistan, but they were able to make peace for the families, some of the families that were affected. Yeah. So I saw that peace making in that way, you know, but it's yeah. not making peace in the nations. And I'm not Biden. I'm not Trump. I'm not any of these people. I can't affect. I would vote for you. Large change on that scale to, but how can I go and make peace in this? Is it yeah. just again, trying to, aid um victims and is that the only role that i play in making peace is right as is giving money and giving shelter and giving supplies to people that are in need because yesterday i was watching that is the 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 thing you said about social media that this is our first war to watch in social media so true i was watching a dad say goodbye to his daughter Mm because he had to go fight for ukraine it was like this is just like her mazzy's age daughter just yeah wrecked me and there was something else too that was like that that was just oh you're watching um 
people filming through their windows of like the mm-hmm. jets flying in and shooting the air to ground missiles. And I was like, this is just, yeah. And we become desensitized so quickly when we totally. are flooded with images and I want to not become desensitized. Right. And I want to understand what it means to be a peacemaker within this in an effective way, like praying for justice, but not actively pursuing or fighting for justice. Yeah. Does that make me a banging gong? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> totally. I don't, I don't want. I that. don't know what pursuing peace and justice look like. I, I know first and foremost my posture towards the world. Yeah. Right is one of the things I can control. So is my posture right. fearful, angry, antagonistic, defensive? Yes. Yes. Um, yes, yes. Well, yeah. And working and doing the hard work to 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 deal with when it's you know when it is those things and to work yeah. towards being not you know not being those things and not in you know adding to the awful political noise as even this gets politicized you know um, I think the other thing is recognizing the privilege I, I I so resonate with what you said I was thinking as you were saying that you know we've really we're now experiencing life as it's been for the vast majority of the world forever. Yeah. You know, sickness, um, um, threats of violence, internal strife. I mean, all of that. And, and not that we haven't, you know, experienced it before, but, you know, as children, at least for you and I, um, our generation grew up in the, the rosy 80s right. and 90s, right? It grew up in the late 70s, early 80s and the world was we were we were top of the world baby we could do anything yeah and um you know to see all of that come crumbling down there are people who just you know older than us who just can't recognize that america has caused um heartache for some in the world yeah and that our story isn't as blemish free as we're often told that it is and so um yeah it's just another revealing of what really guides our hearts and minds and value systems, you know? Um, that's what that Willeman quote was for me. It was, um, you know, that it just, it just said, yep, I, I think Jesus is stupid. And, uh, and agreed, I don't, you know, the nation state as it exists as a nation state, um, got it. I understand the difference between me and the nation state. But the confusing of uh, American Christianity with the kingdom of God um, or Christianity focused on America with the kingdom of God is something that we have to actively resist even in these moments. That's the interesting thing is trying to trying to define like wh- the thing that I sent you guys, Shane's, Shane Claiborne's statement yep. Yep. yesterday. One of the lines he had in there was, uh, what was it? Um, peacemaking does not mean passivity peacemaking is the active resistance of violence but not on its own terms peacemaking is about interrupting injustice without mirroring injustice resisting Mm. oppressors without becoming oppressors neutralizing enemies without destroying them yeah I'm like that sounds amazing what the hell does that mean I I remember man there as you say that Tim I remember there was an image of um, the the racial riots that were happening in uh, twenty nine or twenty twenty, um, and there was one image of a of a policeman 
like everything's on fire and there's a singular policeman who's been cut off from the rest of his squad and there are a group of black men who have surrounded him with their backs toward him facing out and not letting anyone harm Harm him him. I, i remember during the arab of spring um, of the early 2010, 11, whenever that was, there were pictures of Muslims surrounding Coptic churches mm-hmm. as the Christians were in worshiping. Um, and then there were pictures of, of Coptic Christians surrounding Muslims as they were praying. And you're like, okay, well, that's, you know, there were also images I saw a couple of days ago of, of people kneeling in Ukraine um, praying. And then there were massive protests, it seems like, from within Russia. And so you're like, okay, this, one of the things I think we've learned, relearned a little bit through all of that is that protests and creative ways of responding um, when we can't, when we don't have any power to do anything official are highly significant in a social media world. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I am... Um, I don't know. I, I'm just, I, I'm reevaluating the way I think about all my thinking yeah. um, as pr- provoked by this. And, yeah. you know, nothing, you know, nothing more than that. Um, we're we're going to finish our uh, center set conversation today. We had uh, a batch of questions that we released uh, midweek last week that was phenomenal we'll probably have another we'll probably have to do another one yeah. um it was so some good ones this morning i know i know i was reading them going oh my goodness uh just a couple of uh housekeeping items number one we had a listener email in from japan asking oh, yeah. are there any listen voxology listeners in japan that would know of communities they they've tried to participate in online communities here but it's like three in the morning for them um and so we just thought hey let's let's do a shout out and see um i know we do have a few listeners in um new zealand and australia which was a similar time zone yep hong kong as well yeah i don't know if that's a similar time zone but um so if you are a listener in japan or nearby could you email us at hello at voxpodcast.com and that will or go to our website and there's a contact form it's actually the better way to do it you can also um at voxologypodcast.com you can also take our survey um i believe our survey is on the website isn't it i don't know <laughs> okay we're, we're getting a link to it but but yeah. hundreds of you have filled it out and it's been super interesting and we've learned a ton oh my goodness we've learned a ton yeah. like we really are the best looking smartest podcast podcast audience out there podcasts yeah podcasts too um so so uh, and then i want to thank janet and brett for coming on the patreon community we're doing a big patreon overhaul here in the next several months um and uh, we'll keep you posted about that but you can go to patreon.com type in voxology community voxology podcast excuse me and find us there all right are you ready tim I'm so ready <laughs> to be done. <laughs> well, now you got all my gears. My gears are all moving on this peacemaking stuff. 
yeah, maybe, maybe we, we talk more about it depending, like if we get a bunch of emails about it, then we'll talk about it. It's, that's really, I mean, I was just saying, here's how I'm processing this as a middle-aged dude um, yeah. who's, you know, and, and watching my, my kids process it has been super interesting. Um, but what I wanted to do is I just wanted to tie up a couple of loose ends. Remember the question that began all of this, um, was what's it mean to unify? Do am I really called to be united with people who, um, you know, uh, don't believe COVID is real or don't believe in systemic racism or whatever. And, and the answer is, uh, it depends what you mean by united. Like, of course, um, we, what we can do in those moments is we can create just new boundary lines. You've got to have this certain view of race. You've got to have z- this certain view of sexuality or you're not a good person. And so we've just created new boundary lines. And what Jesus is asking us to do is to get rid of the boundary line making process altogether. So instead, what we do are we find ourselves in communities of people who disagree, but um, those that we are united with are all of the ones who are turned towards Jesus. And discerning that, of course, takes a very long time. Um, there are all sorts of people that claim his name and do not act in ways that would, you know, and I'm one of them. Yeah, um, so, so you have to discern a, a relational trajectory um, and that just takes a lot of time and I'm only capable of discerning relational trajectories of myself in the midst of a community, but a very small one. Um, yeah. and, it's a um, daily posture check. Yes, Which absolutely. Am I facing currently? <laughs> Why am I looking at the ground again? Right. And, and the great gift of community is of course saying, Hey, this seems like, like, like 2% off here, you know, two yeah. degrees off. Um, and as that, you know, that's a slight difference, but then as time goes on, it it becomes greater and greater and greater. Yeah. And so there are dynamics though in, um, center set communities that I want to discuss briefly that get at, at least in our, you know, several conversations haven't been mentioned yet. You know, we, we've talked about humility and invitational character and curiosity and all those sorts of things. Process and, um, you know, um, a relational dynamics of being committed to somebody, to be with them, to be for them, um, before there's ever any towardsing, if ever. Um, but I, I wanted to talk just about a couple of things. First, I want to talk about, and I couldn't think of a better word than the word security, if a church is centered if sent, is centered on Jesus in a true and real way, there's a security to that church that is different than the anxiety-laden uh, churches that, that feel the need to have and justify boundaries for everybody. Like there's an underlying anxiety in bounded churches that results in their boundary line drawing yeah. that isn't there in theory in centered churches. In other words, boundary churches um, are secure enough to allow for doubts, questions, 
uh, people to not like their community and not take that personally. Like there's a security in that, the, the recognition that we're partnering with God Almighty who That's loves- That's a centered church. In a centered church, I'm sorry, yes. There is a, there is a security to the centered church that allows for people uh, to be questioning, to be doubting, to be worried, to be messy, to be hugely in process that you often don't get in bounded churches. Yeah. Um, when you're centered on Jesus and you, f- you feel like you're not the one doing the heavy lifting, it's not my job to save everybody. I'm not the savior of everybody. It's not my job to play the Holy Spirit um, with other people. Now that, that, that doesn't preclude times when, of course, we lovingly uh, yeah. intervene and expose with each other, of course. That's not what I'm talking about. The underlying anxiety that it's all up to us and I was thinking of that Ray Bolt song um, that my church used to sing like 30 years ago. And it was, um, thank you for giving to the Lord. I was a life that was changed. Mm. Uh, have you ever heard this song? Mm-mm. Oh, it's, it's horrific. And it, it's a song about people in heaven who come, up to, uh, who, who come up to you and thank you for these seemingly small things that you did. Gotcha. But because you did them, they were in heaven and not mm. the other place. And if that's the kind of weight we're all carrying around, and I do think there's a bit of truth to the idea that we do witness to Jesus and our witness matters. Our witness can help or our witness can hurt. No doubt about that. But but very often in bounded churches, there's the sense that God's not at all interested and it's entirely up to us uh, to do that. And so there's lots of guilt and shame and manipulation towards soul winning, um, or whatever. And when you take away under that understanding of salvation and forgiveness and following Jesus, there's a security that comes from just simply saying I'm part of a community. And as a communal effort, we witness to the, the risen Jesus, but that's not up on whether or not I have a great evangelism style or not, or, you know, all the pressure to always be performing well um my christian identity and because very often what we do instead in the midst of anxiety and fear is we create boundary lines that are easily easily measurable and so all of this kickback we're getting from the certain reformed folks about deconstruction it's all bounded thinking i mean they're they're absolutely known for bounded thinking not all of them and certainly bounded thinking exists lots of other places right yeah. in evangelical camps all from every stripe imaginable but there's one very clear example of how um you know boundaries are being used and provoked out of anxiety and as such you cannot you have to dismiss or label deconstruction as something to be resisted because um, I would argue, though they would vehemently disagree, that there's an underlying anxiety about how this whole thing works. Yeah. And when you get rid of that anxiety and you find yourself secure in your identity in Christ, I don't fear about my salvation. I don't worry about what happens when I die. I'm not a fan of dying, don't want to do it anytime soon, but I actually <laughs> believe the stuff we're talking about. So I find myself being hopeful in odd situations and joyful at times when circumstances aren't great. Right? There's this sense in which that to me is the the witness to Christ. And and from that center then, I have no problem um getting into all sorts of great conversations but i'll never manufacture them due to some external pressure you know to save souls or i'm the only bible there uh, they were will ever read or you know any of those old cliches 
Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, so centered churches, uh, this is a quote from Stuart Murray. Boom. Good job, Stuart. Churches with healthy centers are secure enough to welcome those who are exploring faith and searching for authenticity. They are relaxed, non-judgmental communities where questions, doubts, dissent, and fears can be expressed and where ethical issues do not preclude acceptance. That's so important. You do not have to get your act together perfectly before you can belong. They are inclusive without compromising communities with deep convictions that are nevertheless open to fresh insights. Churches that allow and encourage critical engagement with beliefs and behaviors, um, but, but um, uh, guide everything um, along the lines of congruence with their founding story, this Jesus narrative. And I was like, that's true. That's yeah. true. I am so much less uptight about whether or not my sermon's perfect or the worship is great or announcements get missed or whatever. There's so much. I mean, and unless you've worked for a church, you have no idea how many churches are run by fear. Fear that people will stop yeah. coming. Fear that we'll lose our jobs because people stop giving. Fear that the church won't be growing. Fear that we won't be successful. Churches are run by fear almost exclusively. Yeah. To find a community that is secure that says, well, um, as long as God continues to invite us to do this, we'll do this. Yeah. And if, if this no longer serves a purpose for the kingdom, we'll all go do something else. Yeah, it's, that's such an interesting idea. The, I was thinking about the science conversation that we had, which was maybe on the last, on the question episode. Um, and yeah. how science is built on the idea of there's people who who came before you and like proposed hypotheses and then proved them to a certain extent. They're, they're, they like gained knowledge on a topic yeah. that came before you. But as a scientist, you continue to be curious and to continue to dig and either build upon what they have found or use what they have found to help you see and find more. Like no scientist is like, hey, we've got it all figured out, period. Like this is science, here you go, here's the book. Right. We're not going to update it ever again. Right. And we're, we operate so opposite of that. I was thinking about just the, like how little I understand about how the universe is held together, <laughs> like tangibly held together. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it, it may, it'll overwhelm you trying to think about all of it. It's Christmas spirit. And that's just one facet of what God has done is that. And I have no way, I don't think any of us do have a way of really understanding how that whole thing holds itself together. And totally. it's just one piece of the puzzle. Right. But if we had the wonder we're so scared of science, but if we had the wonder and curiosity that built upon the knowledge of our predecessors and continued to seek, if that was the model that we had as pastors or yeah. whatever, man, that would be, I, I think it would be liberating. Absolutely. And we would learn so much. Well, just imagine, imagine you met a husband who was perpetually obsessed with, I wonder if she'll leave me. I wonder if she loves me. I wonder if she yeah. likes me. Right, who was constantly having to perform and be on, yeah. so right, and they operate instead of uh, out of security, they operate out of anxiety, and they yeah, perform. And how, do they perceive, how does everybody else perceive me? How do they perceive our marriage? How do they right. perceive what we're? Yeah, totally. And that that to me is a lot of what pastoral ministry has become. Yeah, in American churches, and I only know that because I've done it. I've been yeah. it. I'm I'm utterly guilty 
um, and have discovered an entirely new way that is far more refreshing. But boundaries don't come out of a vacuum. They come from certain understandings of the way things are happening in the world. And it's those things that you've got to address before you even get to the boundaries. And they build in that, that like you were saying earlier, like the 2% off target. Yes. Like you start from a good spot, but the further you go, starting off base, you start, those things just build like that's right naturally out of that that's right and um yes 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 and and that gives me to a kind of relational dynamic number two and and part of the security we have is one of the things that the diagrams that we did in the first episode one of the things the diagram doesn't capture is that the center is always moving toward us we're not the only one moving like we are mm-hmm. moving together, but this, the, the diagram just paints it as if it's up to me. Uh, but the, the, the better drawing is that the center is moving towards us always. Mm-hmm. And there are times we reorient to the center that's always moving toward us. Um, and I think that's a super important point because that's part of where the security comes from. If you've been taught that God is waiting to damn you, looking for any reason to punish and discipline and be disappointed in you, which is what I internalized. I don't know if that was ever taught, but I internalized that so much so that my days were literally based on whether or not I'd sinned that day in very particular ways or not. When you internalize that understanding, security is something you'll never have. And and I would imagine that people uh, from those traditions would say security is not something you ever want yeah totally. um because <laughs> you have to persevere to the end um and and i'm not nor do i agree with people who just think you can pray a prayer and eternal security baby you're in no matter what i don't i don't think that at all i think it's a whole different paradigm than either <laughs> of those extremes it sounds insane it sounds and insane those things go hand in hand too like the the god's waiting to damn you and the pray the insurance policy or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a package deal. And it, on when you just say them together, it sounds bananas. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's so different from the way Jesus articulated his movement, the way Paul translated it into Greek culture through these small communities. And it's just so disappointing. So when you've internalized that you've drank from that fountain, particularly yeah. when we're impressionable as kids and, and yeah. teens and college students, Man, it's so hard to overcome, but that's where the boundaries come from. The boundaries yeah, come from, absolutely. I need security. I need to know who's in and who's out. Yes. And one of the places security comes from is the recognition that God is always initiating, um, that the God revealed in Jesus is actually God. And... Um, and that turns out to be the best news. There's no impressing we have to do. Now, obviously, I I work out my Christian identity, but I got the identity first, um, and then proceed to work it out. And that's what what grace actually turns out to mean is God's initiative towards us. So one of the things that you know the diagram didn't capture is that dynamic. The dynamic of make like a active diagram that's like. Yeah, it's always people are turning towards in a way, people are moving closer and farther, but the center is always moving towards everybody all the time. The interesting thing too is with what you just said about um, grace because you have the identity first and you're working that out. Is that really, in my the first thing that clicked in my head is the way that the sin as missing the mark 
works within that paradigm. Right. Because so much of it is just like, oh, I, I'm, I've been given this identity. I'm trying to, I'm trying to work it out and fit it on and stuff. And part of that process is missing the mark. Yes. Part, and, and, and missing the mark is the failure to live out the vocation yeah. and the identity. Yeah. So, so it, of course it manifests itself in individual transgression, but that's not the focal point. The yeah. focal point is that we've bent, we've been reoriented away um, from, from true human life, from the center. And that manifests in all of the things that we do to ourselves and each other. But the yeah. things that we do to ourselves and each other, the things that we say to ourselves and to each other, those are, those are not root things, those are symptom things. And when we yeah. make a base of whole religion around managing those things, yeah. hearts go unaffected and of course you're gonna be insecure. Or they're affected, but they're affected through shame and guilt and, yes. and inability to or, or a feeling that you're in, unable to like change that you are just like corrupted and yes and just sit in that cycle of like yeah r you know rinse and repeat rinse and repeat yeah yep totally third dynamic and um we want to camp here a little bit is um how the bible is used in bounded churches versus centered churches Often you can tell um, how the Bible is used, and, let, and let's throw fuzzy in there too, because very often, um, and, and we've all been familiar with this, and let me just play with stereotypes for a second. So, I, I, because I have preached horrible, horrific sermons mm. in my life, and still do, as uh, the community of which I am a part will tell you. Um, <laughs> I, I've made it a um, to improve and to be more faithful to Jesus. I have worked on what is what is what does it mean to be a teacher in our day and age, hmm. um, with all the sensitivities um, you know that that have to be carried in the midst of public settings. But what's the thing? What's the thing we're going after when we teach and preach? And, um, and so I see, I see centered teaching, I see bounded teaching, and I see fuzzy teaching. Yeah. And fuzzy teaching exists, um, uh, and I see it all over evangelicalism. And again, I'm guilty too, so I'm not throwing stones, but it's, it's the moral therapeutic self-improvement gospel. Yeah. Here's Jesus giving us meaning. Here's Jesus giving us purpose. Here's Jesus filling the hole in our heart. Here's Jesus working to make me a biblical man. Here's Jesus working to make me a biblical woman. Here's Jesus working to make me a godly parent. Here are business principles from the Bible and leadership examples that I should follow. The Bible becomes kind of a manual sort of handbook, but, but it's fuzzy in the sense that we're not really talking about the hard stuff. Um, that's, it keeps it nice and fuzzy. We're talking about all the stuff we can agree on. Like, Hey, who wouldn't want to be a better person? Who wouldn't want to be more thankful guys come to our four week study on thankfulness, right? That we always do around Thanksgiving. Let's talk about relationships guys in February that we always do in February. Guys, let's talk about, you know, how we handle our money. The stewardship series we always do in January. I mean, it's a formula and the formula is always, Hey guys, we can all agree, right? Humility is important. We can all agree. 
but it's super fuzzy in the sense that it's left up to me mm. and there's no there's no like definitive teeth to the invitation it's just however i'm hearing and it fits quite naturally in the way americans approach human life mm. and that's not what the gospel did the gospel disrupted normal natural patterns of human life so um and, and and you know and and you could have a sermon full of all three so this isn't right. like just there's just one diet a bounded sermon is one that that focuses usually on enemies so we at this church believe x yeah right implication is well those other churches don't that's a lot of the fear stuff that you said earlier. a lot of the fear stuff bounded churches also spend a lot of time clarifying their boundaries so hey we're going to do a series on inerrancy this is what we mean right. by inerrancy they have very long doctrinal statements they'll teach through those doctrinal statements um, not a lot of room for questions doubts um but you'll get the sense that if you believe this you're in if you don't believe this you're out or if you're questioning it you're questioning god yeah that's the sense you'll get from the preaching centered teaching going back to the well and fences metaphor right yeah. when you you hold cattle by by either putting fences up or by digging a well that's the only place they can get water centered teaching is teaching that is focused um, on Jesus of Nazareth and inviting people to reconsider their habits, practices, and, and modes of life in light of the fact that his kingdom has now come and is available to us. Um, it, is, uh, it is invitational in nature. It keeps the most important things the most important things. It doesn't elevate peripheral um, stuff to first order issues. People don't leave um, th thinking they're outsiders if they disagree. You are simply being invited into this way of life, and it's okay that you have questions, doubts, and are skeptical about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, one of the things that Baker, channeling Hebert, gets into <laughs> is, and we mentioned this in the midweek um, episode, um, disintegrative shaming and reintegrative shaming. Right. And a lot of people use the Bible um, along these lines. So let's talk about this. Um, not all shaming is the same. Now, shame for us means something different than what it meant in honor shame culture. Shame had to do with a loss or gain of social prestige, how you looked and were perceived in the community. Right. So honor meant, ooh, you were esteemed by others. And shame meant you were not esteemed by others. You lost esteem by others. Um, so, so we have to get that idea of shaming. Because um, for us, shaming is you're awful, you're evil, you're horrible. Yeah. And it's how I then feel. I, I feel internally something's wrong with me. Yeah. I'm not saying that's not, that's totally legit. The problem is it's not what the Bible means usually when it's talking about shaming. And so we're honoring. Yeah. And so um, we'll use those words, even those, those words, though, because we will naturally think, well, how can shaming ever be good? How could, right. shever, uh, shever, how could shaming ever be integrative? And, and that's, the, that's the cultural difference, is that, is that in those situations it could be. And we'll try to provide some... Uh, modern examples to kind of show that it could be but let's get in view the difference so 
Uh, disintegrative shaming focuses on making an example of guilty offenders. So mm -hmm. often it'll be like, well, if we did, if we let this one go, we have to let them all go. Um, that's sort of great examples of bounded thinking, right? If it has to be equally applied to everyone always. Um, disintegrative shaming um, is, it, it's not just, it's not just powerful for the person being excluded. The church has to see the person excluded so that they realize there is a real boundary line and there are consequences for crossing it. Right? So it's private yeah. and public. Um, the goal of disintegrative uh, shaming is stigmatizing. Right. Well, that person's a adulterer, drunkard, failure, you know, they're gay. I mean, whatever it is. Um, reintegrative shaming, and again, in Jesus terms, acknowledges that a social bond has been broken. Um, and it draws attention to the shameful action, but doesn't shame the person in doing so. And that seems like just a rudimentary sort of difference, but it makes all the difference in the world if you've experienced one um, and then experienced the other. Shaming the action versus shaming the person turns out to be a really big deal. In parenting, my goodness, in parenting, right? What's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Yeah. Right? That's shaming the person. In parenting, it's like, hey, man, what you did right then is not cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exposing and shaming the action. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Well, I still, did, I still love you. you I absolutely still love you, but that isn't you. Like I've said that to my kids, like, that's not you. That's yeah. not you. That's totally out of character for you. What was going on? Um, that to me feels very, very different than trying to stigmatize somebody. All right. The goal though of reintegrative shaming is to heal relationships and um, restore the offender to the group. And so it's like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. You had to tell the truth. The people who did evil had to testify to the evil they did and to ask forgiveness to the victims. Like, and that was shaming. That was the public acknowledgement. But the goal of that acknowledgement was reconciliation, that the only way there can ever be restoration and reconciliation of the truth is told. So the reason we get to the truth in disintegrative shaming is to stigmatize the person and cast them out. The reason we get to the truth in reintegrative shaming is so that the truth can be told, amends can be made, relationships can be restored, and the person can be, can be restored back into the community. Yeah, so that's when you think about like sayings like the truth will set you free. The first part of the first example of that, it does not because it ostracizes excommunicates right. correct bound, it not just sets um bounded lines up but actually bounds the individual right and will often bound the victim because they they don't get any like catharsis from there's no reconciliation yes yes or, exactly if that makes sense but then the truth being something that opens things up reveals exposes right. heals Yes. You so see several in that. several years ago, you and Bonnie and Kevin and Joanna and our friend Brenda called me on some stuff. And you could have done that one of two different ways. Um, 
you you chose to do it in the reintegrative way like the calling out was for the purpose of restoring to community none of you guys ran none of you excluded none of you did any of those things instead what you did is you pursued harder yeah. and um and and worked to operate in the realms of hey trust has been broken that has to be restored that so that's real there's a social dynamic to this that has to be acknowledged um and is it possible to do that in a way that doesn't stigmatize and and i can say years later absolutely that was yeah. that was that was i've actually never been a part of a more meaningful community than I was during that piece of life because what I was ready for was stigmatizing and, you know. Um, well, and that's easier. So to go to what we were talking about last episode, it's all, that's just easier. It doesn't have correct. positive results, but it's easier to shame, to exclude for the party that's doing it because it's just like a, hey, all right, you're done, you're out, peace. Right. And right. it's also can be easier for the person who's being shamed and excluded because you just accept a you accept a position and do not have to work at it. Yes. You just take that that title. And so I'm thinking about this in regards to the peacemaking too, like from the beginning of this conversation and how much work um, is involved in it's kinda it was a Gloria Steinem. Uh, she said the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. Was that her? I don't know, but it was somebody like that. So yeah. yes. But I, I, I kind of see that in that where it's like this, yeah. you know, at first, like this is, it's going to sting, but the, it's going to, it's going to do the work. Yes. And that's where the practice of Jesus contra the practice of the Pharisees really comes into play. Yes. And we talked about this during the midweek episode that the Pharisees practiced shaming in the worst ways, the excluding in the worst ways. And that was the way they invited people to repentance. Yeah. Um, was, you know, keeping themselves separated. That's what e the word Pharisee even comes from, the root word that means to separate from. Yeah. And, um, you know, they had, they took the, the, the meal, the rules for, for meals for priests in the temples and applied it to all Israel. And then when all Israel, you know, didn't obey, they called that, they labeled them sinners. Sinner was a, not a moral category, but it was a, an identity statement that the Pharisees applied to people and, and they had boundaries and Jesus ran afoul of those boundaries in terms of the Sabbath and dietary laws and all sorts of things. You're, you're seeing boundary issues and again, not healthy boundary, but bounded thinking manifested in boundaries yeah. that Jesus is running afoul on. Now what Jesus does, and this guys, this is so key. What Jesus does, and I cannot emphasize this enough, is Jesus in that culture does something with shame that was absolutely staggering. Now, shame, again, is low esteem. Yeah. What Jesus would do is he would lower himself and allow himself to be lowered in the eyes of the community in order to remove the stigma from sinners. Yeah. So, and this man, I cannot preach this enough. I mean, let's look yeah. at like several examples come to mind. Easy one is this disputed passage in John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Yeah. We think it's part of the text. We're not sure if it goes there. But the woman, only the woman, is brought, captured yeah. uh, in the act and brought yeah. before Jesus. 
And Jesus does this thing where, and he's asked, you know, and they're trying to trap Jesus. The woman is just a means to that end. They have no regard for her sin. Yeah, totally. And what Jesus does is he draws in the dirt, Mm -hmm. which takes all the attention away from... Now, and there are all sorts of, I mean, we don't know what he, what he drew. There's a passage in Jeremiah that talks about how Yahweh will write the sins of the people in the dirt. Mm-hmm. And so something, maybe that's what he's doing. Because then he, then he looks up at the crowd and says, okay, well, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Now, what has he done? What has he done? He joined her in her shame. Yeah. Right. He did not. He was given the opportunity to join with the Pharisees, excluding and stigmatizing her. He needed not. Instead, he joins her in shame by not reacting the expected way. Then he he practiced re, reintegrative shaming against the Pharisees by saying, well, if you're perfect, go ahead. And then all alike, from the oldest to the youngest, they leave. Right. And then Jesus says, um, they don't condemn you, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. So he told the truth. He yeah. told the truth. What, what the dynamic she was participating in is an old creation dynamic. And he tells the truth about that, but only after he absorbs her shame by joining her in it. And he doesn't use the truth that he exposes to exclude no, shame. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or the woman at the well. Yeah. Right. The Samaritan woman in John uh, chapter four. Again, the whole story ends by this woman running to her village saying, this man told me everything I've ever done. And she's excited about that. Now, if she would have come across a Pharisee who told her everything she ever done, she would not have been excited. Right. So Jesus, knowing everything she'd ever done, set her free versus kept her in chains. That's the kind of reintegrative shaming we're talking about. Because he even looks at her and says, you've, it's true, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with is not your husband. Now, in that right. culture, she's clearly a victim, um, but, but she's not totally innocent, most likely either. Right. Um, because Jesus does call attention to that and expose it. Now, now, and again, there's debate. Is she, is she an immoral woman or has she been set aside five times? Who knows? But in Jewish culture, you do not live together without, you know, being married. So minimally. Just a, woman and, just a woman and that's already her. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Her sin. But she meets, he meets with her alone, which is shameful. She's a Samaritan and they get into a conversation, which is shameful. She's the first one in John's gospel that finds out he's the Messiah, right? So he again joins her. The disciples show up and are hugely disappointed. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you here? Do you want us to get rid of her? Yeah. Or another great example in Luke, Luke chapter seven, where Jesus um, is sitting at the... um, at the at the table with pharisees and a woman who is notoriously sinful now remember sinful doesn't mean does bad things sinful is an identity rendered by the pharisees onto people who did not keep torah the way they saw torah to be kept right we don't know she her so so the perfume she uses that may have indicated she was a prostitute but prostitution back then wasn't like like webcam stuff and you know getting paid for that it was like it was sexual exploitation and oppression 
Mm. Um, and so, you know, for, for, for her um, to have that, you know, stigma, um, she interrupts the dinner meeting. She approaches the table, which is massively shaming. She undoes her hair, which right. is again, massively shaming. She touches Jesus, which is massively shaming. And Jesus lets her. He joins her in her shame. He, because even the Simon the Pharisee looks at Jesus and goes, "Well, he 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 must not know who's touching him, right? But he he knows damn well who's touching him, yeah. and encourages it. Um, and not only that, but then praises her as more righteous and more loving than that of the Pharisees, and tells her at the end, "Go, you may go in peace. Your faith has made you well." And, but what does he do in all of those instances? He joins them in their shame. This is what the American Christianity refuses to do. This is what, remember we had a question about a, a niece that wouldn't go to a wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's disintegrative shaming. That's, well, you're not doing it the way I think, so I disapprove and withdraw. Yeah. There's no room for reconciliation, no room for coming back. There's nothing. There's just cutting off. And that is the American Christian way in certain circles of dealing with issues we don't agree with. Yeah. Reintegrative shaving is going, and again, we don't like the word shaming, but going and joining the outcasts in their shame. Yeah. Me becoming the center of attention instead of the handicapped or disabled person. Me becoming the center of attention rather than uh, the inmates that just walked in the door. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there are ways to practice this that are unbelievably creative that we just haven't explored yet, right? So, so you know, a gay wedding. Um, the, the, the family has turned away from, from one of the two men that are getting married. And so you're, you get invited as a Jesus follower. What should you do? Well, the worry is I'll, I'll, I'll be complicit in their sin. <laughs> and, um, and so the temptation is to withdraw and exclude and to stigmatize. And I just want to argue, the, and, and not always, I can imagine circumstances where maybe this isn't a great idea, but the general immediate posture towards would, would be towards, well, if I get crap and I lose esteem in my community because I joined somebody when they're, they were excluded from their family, I'm totally willing to do that. That's a Jesus new creation posture. Yeah. I'm willing to be associated with people who are considered shameful because yeah. I now get to play a part in uh, dealing with their shame. Yeah. So when people preach the Bible, you can tell instantly, are they using the Bible in a fuzzy way? Are they using a Bible in a bounded way? Or they're using the Bible in a, a centered way where we are going to tell the truth. We're going to yeah. tell the truth. But, but there's wisdom and discernment in that post, like the posture itself, like requires wisdom and discernment. The other posture, the bounded posture, the shaming posture does not. It has like, there's, there's preconditioned. Yep. Uh, you know, like a, a, a laundry list of preconditioned things that you just like, you don't have to understand it. You don't have to understand, like you don't have to nuance it. You just say X, Y, Z, you're on this side of that piece. Right. But this one requires, like you said, like there's probably instances in which, you know, somebody's uh, murdering somebody and you don't go sit with them in the shame of their... Totally. And that, that there's wisdom and discernment in there where you're like, hey, this yes. is a situation which the posture I'm holding requires me to discern that this and, and would not be the appropriate response. That's right. That's all. Oh, that's so good, Tim. Um, Sethi, shush. Um, 
<laughs> he leans on my shoulder the entire time, breathing heavily in my ear. So it takes a bit of focus, ladies and gentlemen. And it's, he's so adorable, I can't tell him no, but he starts repeating what I'm saying in my ear. <laughs> it's very distracting. Oh, anyway. Yes, Tim, and amen. Paul highlights both sides of the nuance of this. When in 1 Corinthians 5, he, he actually calls them to practice disintegrative shaming. There is someone so, um, so uh, publicly sinning that it's affecting the whole community. Uh, you have to cast them out of your community. Because you're doing the, the that your tolerance of that sin is doing so much harm in the community, you're actually actually all suffering. Yeah. But then in Second Corinthians, he comes back and he's like, "Hey, remember that? Remember that person? Well, let him back in. They, they you've done it enough. Like, yeah. good for you. Like, there, the both of those. There are times, and there have to be times. This is why it's centered and not fuzzy. There yeah. have to be times when something is egregious enough that you cannot join them." Yeah, um, but that um, door is not locked. But the door is not locked. Now, often we don't join them when they themselves don't see right. their sin. Yeah, we've had instances in communities where you know um, people have ruined marriages without without giving a darn about the marriage, the community, the anything. It's just you know we had a, we we had a couple on a mission trip have an affair, and and you're just like. Okay, well, love you, committed to you, but that is so egregious um, and so hurting our community, particularly who it was, that we cannot join you in this. Um, and there was no repentance, no humility, no sorrow. It was just, well, I'm, I'm once saved, always saved, baby. So giddy up. Um, I get to do what I want. And so... And, and this is where Jesus does shame, and he shames the Pharisees. The, the ones who practice the integrative shaming get shamed by Jesus. When he does the seven woes to them in Matthew 23, woe to you scribes and woe to you right, Pharisees, yeah. he's publicly shaming them. Now, his goal is um, you know, to bring them back in community, and like we talked about last episode, that actually does happen after the resurrection. Many Pharisees join the community of Jesus followers. But um, the, the biggest thing that, that we have to lead with is that grace leads always. Now, obviously, there are times where we have to have healthy boundaries and there are things that hurt the community and you have to. You have to protect the community. But your key, your key word in all of that, Tim, was discernment. There's no yeah. rule for this. Um, and a lot of times our discernment with each other is based on, is there, is there godly sorrow? Is there yeah. repentance? Is there, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and then I can hear the critics in my brain saying, yeah, okay, well, but gay people don't think they're wrong. So shouldn't we just keep excluding them? Great question. We've talked about this at length. Not getting going into that now, <laughs> but I can hear I can hear the counters, yeah. you know, to that as well. So all that is to say, Timothy John Stafford, hey Seth, hand off my head. <laughs> oh my goodness, but I know. Bless you, son. Bless you with a holy blessing. Um, so anyway, we're an hour and uh, sixteen. So I think 
we gave that a pretty good run. Anything you want to add, my friend? I was thinking so much of this is like you have to, what's the word? You have to like submerge yourself into it and really understand current and temperature and you know what I mean? Like you have, and the, the rhythm of the waves and really learn how to be a part of what's happening. And I was thinking about, I'm always trying to think about all these different series through the now and not yet and through the kingdom that's here and what that means, like the partnership and the identity and all of that with the kingdom that is here and now, but then also with the not yet part of that and how those two (laughs) things hold hands. So when I mentioned the universe earlier, I was watching a video the other night, I couldn't sleep and I was just watching a National Geographic thing on what's outside of our universe because no one knows. And the fact that the universe is still growing, like creation is still happening. Right. So the universe is now and not yet. Like it has not finished doing its thing or God hasn't finished what he's doing or whatever. And that's really interesting. And we have to try to understand the physics of the now in order to also understand the not yet of the universe as it grows and changes and how that affects the way that stars... um, uh, move farther away from us and what it causes to orbits and galaxies and all that kind of stuff. Like all these crazy things are all a part of that now and not yet. Yeah. And so that made me start thinking about the progressive revelation because hmm. the universe is a progressive revelation. It's, it predates us and yeah. is still going and will still be revealing itself after you and I are long gone. Long. And how all of that plays into the way that we draw lines now based mm. on our understanding of things, the way that we interact with people now and our understanding of things. I, I, I realize that's rambling again. No, 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 no. But no. I'm trying to like piece all that stuff together because I, I feel like the we only live in the now part. Yes. And we don't even let allow the previous now to affect our current now. We just like, we only exist now. And right. so we will do everything within that and we ignore the not yet part of it yeah and even in the now we ignore the kingdom being here now it's like we take two big pieces out of both sides of that Mm -hmm. we live and exist in the now but not within the kingdom and but we preach something that's coming but we don't live as though the not yet is connected to the does that make sense? To the now, absolutely. Like we exclude the two biggest pieces of it so yes so there so that's called eschatology yeah. There are two kinds that you find in a lot of churches. Not shocking. Um, um, like realized eschatology is that all of that stuff about the future is happening or has happened, right? Even the war stuff. It's like, oh, here we go, end times, baby. Oh, yeah, that was on, all over this morning. Huh? All over. And that's so unbelievably wrong. That's an example where theolo- bad theology hurts people. This is not, we've been in the end times since Jesus ascended into the heavens. And the verses that are quoted have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, not with the wars and rumors of wars about Jesus' second coming. Nope, nope, nope. Nope, nope, nope. Thank you, Seth Thomas. So there's there's, uh, realized eschatology, which are all the things are here now and there's nothing left. Yeah. And, and then there's sort of this futurist eschatology, the dispensational kind of view, which is man, almost nothing's here. It's all for the future. Hmm. And so we live in, in, in um, this kind of weird, like middle ground of the now and the not yet. Christ has come. 
and Christ is coming. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. Um, and both are true. He talks about it as it's, if it's here and if it's coming. And we, and we know, and this was the big surprise. They thought perhaps two messiahs, some of the Jews thought two messiahs would come. And the shock with Jesus is that it was that it was one Messiah coming twice. It wasn't Neo and then Trinity. <laughs> yes, for you Matrix fans out there, absolutely. And so, so the the surprise was that the resurrection happened and the Holy Spirit was poured out, but Rome was still in power. Yeah. And the powers and the principalities were still at work and pe people were persecuted, which they didn't have categories for this. And this is why Paul spends so much time in his epistles talking about how churches, churches should embody new creation because they're invited to be new creation in the midst of old creation, which makes it, it was totally unprecedented in the Jewish way of thinking about. And that's kind of all of this, right? I mean, everything yes. we just went through is exactly that. Like That is new creation dynamic, yes. In, and we live in the in-between times, yeah. right? We live in something called inaugurated eschatology, where the kingdom has come and it is coming. And the first time it comes, it establishes a true and real beachhead where the powers are decisively defeated. And yet, they still are alive and kicking. And <sighs> we're in the process of working out the identity because what what is god after he's after cooperative participants um and um evidently the long slog of human history is what's required to get there yeah and that's where i think like i know some people are um adverse to the progressive revelation just the term but even what you just said in that way of like how we learn and grow yeah. as people like that it there is you know, my students will be, uh, so I just, my favorite show right now is this 1883 show. And it's like this prequel to um, Yellowstone, which is a really popular like Western um, drama on TV. And it's following these people on the Oregon Trail. And he does the, the guy Taylor Sheridan that created this series and that, and Yellowstone and a bunch of other things. He mm. really makes you, he really makes you sit in it and try to understand how difficult mm. that time was and how mm. many people died and, and it was just a rough period of human history yeah and with uh with social media we're aware of so much thing you know so much that's happening but in a lot of ways we've never been safer than we are now you know like when you look mm -hmm. at statistics and that kind of stuff and we have progressed as people in a lot of ways as we learn and grow and change habits and learn what's destructive and what's not and whatever, like we're capable of that on a scale. Yeah. Um, and you see it. So it's, it's interesting to fight against that, I guess is the, yeah. But even with what you're saying, like the now and the not yet and knowing that we're in the middle of it, that alters understand. It's just, I wish that we could figure out a way of really articulating that in a way that is palpable for people to carry. Cause it, if you don't understand that you're in the middle of that, that's happening now and is still happening or is going to happen, you can't correctly posture yourself. Correct. That, man, that is, Tim, you say many profound things. That is one of them. It's, okay, if you misunderstand that the kingdom's here, you'll just think it all, we're just waiting for heaven. And you'll draw those lines. And if you think the kingdom um 
or yeah, if you think the kingdom isn't here at all, then we're just waiting for heaven, and that's yeah. the point, soul winning. If if you're convinced it's all here, then um, it's up to us, baby. It's up to us. We're the ones responsible for building the kingdom. We made this mess. We fix it, and you sort of kind of remove God at all from the picture. So the hope yeah. you have isn't in God's initiative and. Um, you know, vast conspiracy to make the world right. Right. Um, what Dallas Willard called the divine conspiracy. D. Willard. Uh, instead, it's all up to us. And so you, and so you see this around the debate around social justice. Yeah. Um, oh, the social justice isn't the gospel. The gospel is to get us out of here. No, no, no. Social justice is the gospel, and it's to make the world better now. And um, it's very easy to be postured in both of those ways, so that you're not secure. The security comes, oh, it's here. And so we absolutely care about what's happening in the world. We're ambassadors of the kingdom now. That's why we yeah. work for the common good. Yeah. And it's not yet, meaning we yearn for the day the creation will stop groaning. We yearn for the day when the afflictions of the body and the afflictions of desire um, either are removed entirely or are dealt with in some sort of final way that they've not yet been dealt with. Yeah. And so absolutely, buddy, that if I were ever going to tell the Jesus story, that's a massive part of it. Um, to understand that we're in the in-between times. We're new creation people in the middle of old creation. Yeah. Somebody emailed in and asked that right there. Like, what's your elevator gospel pitch? Yes. Based on everything you've been doing. Because like normally it's, I listen to a, these poor people being um, just harassed by a Christian in the grocery store a couple days ago. And he was oh, just like, you know, oh, just giving that spiel, the old spiel. And right. they were just like, they wanted out of it so bad. And I was like, how can I <laughs> go in there and rescue them from this onslaught? But, you know, we, we do build around the pitch. And so it's interesting. Someone emailed in, they're like, what's the pit? Like, what's your, what is your elevator pitch for, you know, your understanding of all of this? Oh, well, simple. That's a great question, by the way. Uh, not simple, but I would say, I mean, it would totally depend, but here's one. I think Jesus of Nazareth is the most compelling person to ever walk the face of the earth, and I think we'd all be better off following him. Let's go grab a beer. Yeah, that's one. Or, hey, um, I think that there's, there is some sort of intelligence and design that lurks behind the universe. I think that we all, as humans, recognize that there's something wrong with the universe, like there's something broken in us and in the world. And the claim of the Christian story is that God came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to be begin the great restoration project that will culminate in something the Bible calls new creation, where everything is put back to the way it should be. And that you and I are invited into that project now through allegiance to the person of jesus okay there's one that's creation fall redemption um restoration right there, there's yeah. you know what i mean well the funny thing with the elevator pitch idea is that like it should be elevated like we should have a five second way to encapsulate this but it's like all we keep learning is that this is a, a really long road that we have to walk with others and so it's like hey how do i pitch this yeah well do you want to come over for dinner yeah and <laughs> yeah, why, you know. why don't we become neighbors and then let's spend 10 exactly. years together? Yeah. All right. Seth is breathing in my ear again. 
So, Seth, let's do... You want to do a blessing? Yes. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Ready? May the Lord bless you. Bless you. And keep you. Keep you. May the Lord shine his face, face upon, you upon you and be gracious, be gracious to, to you. you. May the Lord, Lord lift, up lift up his countenance, his countenance to, you. to you. And in these days, bring, bring us, us peace. Peace. Peace out. Amen. Peace out, he says. <laughs> Amen. Perfect. Amen. Till next time, friends. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also Join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.